So it was one of those throwaway conversations. You know, one of those comments you make, you just make it and you move on and you don't think much about it. I was pastoring in Gresham, Oregon at the time, and I was speaking with a friend, and I, I said to him just in a conversation, that, and it, I had not been, it had not been premeditated, it just came out. I said, yeah, he asked me how things were going. I said, well, you know, if some things don't change, I'm probably out of here. And so we finished the conversation and, and went on. It was just a few days later as I entered into a season of prayer that I had an encounter with Jesus that shook me to my core. So I confess to you this morning that there are those moments. Since my years in college, I, I began to get this better understanding of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. How he had forgiven me for my sins and how his favor is on me in some incredible ways daily. And as I grew to understand that, the, the only thing I could do, and it's really a form of worship, I, I finally got to a place that, that in my encounters with Jesus, I said this, I've watched what you've done in life, and I watched how you take care of me. And so I want to give control of my life over to you. Because I, I knew, I studied, this was the God who had ho hovered over the face of the deep. This is the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the God who said, let there be land, and there's land. This is the God who said, let there be an orangutan, and there's an orangutan. This is God who said, let there be these stars, let these be these galaxies, let, let this be. This is the God who said, let there be Scotty Matta, and there was. <laughs> this was that God. I said, God... You know me better than I know me, and you know what is good. Because every time he created, he said, that's good, that's good, that's good. And when he created man and woman, he said, oh, that's very good. I said, you know what's good much better than I know what's good. Therefore, I want you to have control. So I just surrendered control to him and said, I want you to run my life. And when I did that, he really took that serious. So I was in this season of prayer, and I had a recognition of a voice that I've grown to know that comes from this, you know, we're built with body, soul, and spirit, and that's that spirit side that recognizes divinity. And I recognized that it was this divine voice speaking to me, not, not audibly, but just I, I recognized it. And the voice didn't say, Jack, that's good. What you said to that guy was good. What he said to me was, who are you? Who are you to tell me where you're going and what you're doing? Because you have already surrendered to me. I had fallen into the same trap that you explored last week with Pastor Jason. James, the first century bishop of Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus, wrote these words in James 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. So what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live, do this or do that. Now listen, you who say. It's what he was saying to me. Now listen, you who said this. You who said you put your trust in me. 
You didn't check with me before you made the comment, before you made the decision, before you began to process this. How do you know that's the best thing for you if you're trusting me? And so then I felt like he said from that point on, because here's, here's the issue. What had happened as I expressed this to, the, to this, my friend, I had been dealing with some very difficult challenges and very stubborn people. And they were ruining my fun. And I was tired. Anybody ever run into difficult people? Stubborn challenges? And I felt at that moment that God said to me, so what if I let those difficult people win? And what if I let those challenges increase? Will you remain where I've asked you and will you trust? To be honest with you, it was such an awareness as we have sensed this morning as we sang in worship, there was such an awareness that this was really God speaking and that he was really serious because that could actually happen. That I found myself broken. I, I felt myself ashamed of my arrogance to think that I could do this better than he could. And my response to him was this. I cried out, if this is what you want, then I will do it joyfully. That's a tough part of following Jesus. See, this whole thing of following Jesus is not just coming in here and, and perhaps saying, oh, Jesus, please forgive me for my sins and we're done. It really is a journey. It really is following him. And part of that journey is the surrender. You looked at it last week. There's, there's a surrender of our location. Jesus, if you say you need me to move over here, even though I love this place, I love the family that's here, I love my job that is here, but you say I move me over here, I will do that because you know what's good. I trust you. It's surrender of our time. When he says, I need you to do this, but we say, we're too busy to do that, and he says, well, change what you're busy doing because I need you to do this. But if I do that, then I'll suffer this way. Not if you trust me. He said, I want you to surrender your business to me. I want, you to, I want you to do it the way I want it done because it belongs to me. Your job, you give that to me. And I want you to surrender your money to me. It's what Jesus on the cross expects because this is what Jesus said in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on your, onto your life, you will lose it. Now catch this. If you try to hang onto your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will what? You will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus said, you've come to me, and you want me to rescue you, and I have. But the rescue is more than me just eradicating your sins so that you can go do the, the thing that you've done in the past. There is a covenant relationship that is established. This morning, I saw Jim Renner up here playing. Jim, are you around here? He may have, I don't see him right now, but Jim and Jim got, had just recently gotten married, and, and, and so we were, we were standing at the Riverside Inn, and we're going through the marriage ceremony, and, and he's making vows, and she's making vows, Katrina's making vows back to him, and, and, and what they're doing is establishing this covenant relationship. Jim did not say this. I heard him. He did not say this. He did not say, Katrina, I give to you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the rest of my life. 
He said, I give you my whole life. Because covenant relationship says all of me with all of you makes all of us. So when Jesus said, I'm coming into your life, I'm forgiving you for your sins, and you're following me, it's all of me and all of you together, and we are one together, but I'm not just your Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So there must be this, this total surrender. And it's not an easy thing for us to live, especially when we're dealing with an entity that we can actually see. But it then must become our mantra, and don't get freaked out by the word mantra. We're not going to Eastern mysticism. It can also mean your song, your declaration. But our mantra should be simply this. If this is what you want, I will do it joyfully. That's got to be the deal that, that we say. I, I see Tom down here, and, and Tom, you've been going through some stuff for the last couple of years, just saying, Jesus, lead me where you want. It's been away from home. We keep praying, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, you bring Tom back. And if he's being stubborn, cleanse that boy so he can get back home. <laughs> but I know these guys, and what they've been praying is, Lord, if that's what you want, I'll do it joyfully. Maybe sometimes a little crankily, but most of the time joyfully. That's part of our training as Jesus followers. So James then, after he says that, comes back to the same statement again, and he says, now listen. So when he's saying, now listen, as he just said it before, he says, now listen, he's saying, I want you to get ready for what I'm going to tell you may be difficult, but when I get done, I want you to be able to say, Lord, if this is what you want, I will do it joyfully. In fact, I want you to just say that out loud with me. If this is what you want, I'll do it joyfully. Ready? If this is what you want, I will do it joyfully. Now say it with a smile. Ready? If this is what you want, I'll do it joyfully. So here's what James says. He continues, and he says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Go, yes, I don't have to deal with this because I'm not rich. I'm okay here. Because we do that. We say, who's rich? Well, we got some pictures for you. First guy. Who's that? Nick Scott. Dude's rich. Got hotels. Got restaurants. Scott Enterprises. Yeah, he's, he's rich. There's this girl that sings. Taylor Swift. And all she has to do is break up with a guy and she has a top song. It's great. Here's this guy that Cleveland loves, LeBron, who gets investing advice from this guy, Warren Buffett, Mr. Billionaire. These guys are rich. We say, see, he's talking to those people. Mm, how much is rich? I read this week that wealthy people do not feel a million dollars makes them feel wealthy. You have to have at least five million. It's what they said, to feel wealthy. Well, most of us are about five million short of that. <laughs> so we think we're not wealthy. In God's kingdom, here is the definition of someone who is rich. Who is rich. It's not defined by amount. Rich is defined as those with more than they need to live. That may be a lot of us in this room. You say, well, wait a minute, he's condemning us because we have more than we need to live? No, he's not condemning anybody who's wealthy. He's condemning the misuse of the funds that we've been given. In fact, he's, he's very confrontive to a bunch of people he, he feels that are wicked who have associated themselves with the community of believers, but yet wealth is their God. How do you know if wealth is your God? 
If Jesus asks you to share it and you don't, then wealth is your God. That's the bottom line. And this walking with Jesus really is a process of eliminating lesser gods because we come into a relationship with Jesus with all these gods, all these things that we want to control, and and he says, no, here, let me control this, let me control this because if you let me, then I'm your God here. I'm, I'm the one you worship. And so we're in the process of trying to eliminate those lesser gods. So how, how does God do that? How, how do we come to the place that these things that we're holding from him, say, God, I really love you over there and those things, but you can't have this because I need to control this. I was sitting with, with Scott Kroll, who is our pastor at our extension congregation at Sparrow Pond, and we were talking about this, and he said, and he gave me just some really, really deep insight. He said, as he studied the scriptures and as he has, has looked at his own life, and, and I said, I, I agree with this. He said, generally for followers of Jesus, they're in one of two places all the time. They're either devastated by God or desperate for God. There's usually not anything in between. And the devastation may be really severe or it may just, as he's doing to me, breaking my heart at that moment, shattering my world as he said, what are you doing? Who told you you could could do those things? Who told you that you could move from this place without permission from me? The devastation comes from the breaking of his heart. Sometimes he shatters our world. Sometimes he disrupts things. Sometimes things are not in order. We go, God, what are you doing? And we're devastated because he's saying, because I need to reveal myself to you and take control. Because any place that I have anxiety, he is not Lord. And this is the tough part of walking with him. Because we want him just to be here on Sunday mornings. And then we do our thing and we leave. He said, no, 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 you can't do that. you got to walk with me. So you're either going to be devastated by him because he has to get rid of a lesser God, or we're desperate for him. Because I know this, when I'm desperate for him, I push everything else out of the way and say, okay, you, I need you, and what do you want me to do with these things? God says, I love that. And so I found that at that moment, that what God was saying to me is that you're off course, that you're, you're distracted, and I need to get you in the spot you need to be. And see, wealth is one of those things that is so distracting. That's why Jesus boldly said that it's really difficult for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God because they are so distracted. And so when James says, you should weep and wail, you who are rich, he's talking about the an expression that the prophets used that was an expression used for one who has encountered the judgment of God. Oh, God! This intense pain that you've encountered God and the judgment's not going well. And you feel, what am I going to do? So there are those moments that Jesus will come to you and he will devastate you, he'll disrupt you, he will, he will allow you to feel some pain so that you get your life straightened out so that you don't have to deal with the final desperation of what he calls the last day. The ultimate devastation. You say, well, why would he do that? And so James continues and he says this in James 5 verse 2, your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes and your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. So let me tell you a Dustin story. And if you're new to this church, that's our our son who went through a seven-year rebellion 
And many times I wanted to just say to him, would you like to see Jesus today? He now is in, in uh, seminary getting ready to work and finishing his master's in theology. And, and I hope God puts him in ministry. It'll teach him. So, <laughs> so when our son Dustin was just beginning his rebellion, he was in middle school and we had just grounded him for conduct unbecoming a smart person. <laughs> and it was Halloween night, and, and, and so we needed to stay home with him so that he could not go anywhere. And, and so we said, you're staying with us, which is the ultimate punishment, and you can't be with your friends, and, and you're going to help pass out candy. You're going to go to the door and be nice to people and pass out candy. And, and so we were doing that, and we got a phone call that there was an emergency, and we needed to go to the hospital. And so we said to him, we're going to be gone three hours. You cannot leave this house, and you cannot invite people in, and you'll continue to pass out candy. So we left, and we actually came back an hour and a half early, and he was AWOL. And the bowl of candy was on the porch empty. You know what he did. He just put it out there, and somebody scored big time because they just poured all of it in the bag and left. So we were rather livid, and, and so I called a mom of one of his close friends, I said, do you have any idea where they're hanging out? He said, I think they're all gathered. And she told me the place. So I drove about a half a mile to the house and walked up and next to the door in one of those little side windows. And I looked in and sure enough, there he was with all his friends sitting, watching television, laughing, having a good time and some girl on his lap. And he was having a great time thinking that he still had time to come home and cover up his treachery. Now, when I was watching him at that moment, I'm telling you that I already was in judgment mode. I had already begun the process. Anything short of death will work. <laughs> I rang the doorbell. He looked over and saw my face in the window, and I read his lips. He said this, oh, my God, it's my father. <laughs> he dumped the girl off his lap and ran into another room as if I hadn't seen him. It's true, middle schoolers have trouble with the frontal lobes. There's just not much there. So they came to the door. You see, he could have hid, but already judgment was already formed. And when he came out, it was, it was coming out. At which time he claimed that I had just ruined his life. When James refers to the last days, in the scripture, the last days is always the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and there's always this eminence, there's always this, this anticipation that he'll be here at any moment. In fact, those who follow Jesus truly believe that he could show up any time. It could be today. And so James is saying, even back then, he said, well, what are you doing? Jesus could show up today, and he's already judging He's standing at the window watching, what are you doing? He said, don't, don't let him show up and find that your clothes have rotted, your crops have diminished, your coins have tarnished. Don't let that happen because he said, the reason it's happening is because I've given you enough to share. Instead, you've hoarded it and it has rotted because you haven't used it for the purpose that I've given it to you for. And that hoarded stuff is already eating you up like fire. That's another expression in that first century that means that you're under judgment. 
because God is already at the door judging you. And when he rings that doorbell and says, I'm here, you're going to say, oh my God, it's my father. So James says, let me warn you. And he gives some simple warnings. So just go with me this morning. These are simple warnings. He says, here's how I want you to deal with people. He said, first of all, treat your employees fairly. That's what he says. If the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships, it also includes your place of work. It should represent how Jesus would treat the kid who mows your yard. How Jesus would treat the guy who put water on your table at Longhorn. It should represent that assistant who's sending out your emails. How would Jesus treat that person? And James says to pay bad wages or withhold money that is due because you think you can get away with it is not good business practice. It is anti-kingdom. So James says this, look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. He said, the wages themselves that you should have given are crying out to God, fraud, fraud, fraud. Now listen to me. This is not just some mythological expression. It's happening. I know a businessman in town who can pay his bills but holds on to the money until the very last moment until they keep asking, 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 asking. And I'm telling you that those wages, those things that are not being paid are crying out against him right now. And who are they crying to? He said, Lord Almighty. The word is Lord Sabaoth. Ever sing that song, A Mighty Fortress? Lord Sabaoth, his name. What is that? That means the commander of God's army. Now put this together. Whenever the scriptures say that we're crying out to God and he's hearing, it means that God is hearing and ready to act. And in this case, the one who's ready and willing to act is the commander of the army who sees what is being done and he's about ready to invade. Get ready for some devastation. In his book, The Three Edwards, Thomas Costain talks about the Duke of Burgundy. His name was Renald III. And Renald III was grossly overweight. In fact, his nickname was Crassus, which is the word fat. So, Renald III had a violent argument with his brother Edward, resulting in Edward leading a successful revolt and taking his brother prisoner and building a room around him in Newkirk Castle. And so, Edward said to Renald, he said, you can leave this room whenever you want, and when you do, I will return your title and your property. Easy. Not a trick because the windows in the room had no bars and the, and the door had no lock. So, well, why didn't he leave? He was too big. He couldn't get through the door. So, okay, just lose weight. You can get through. Yeah. But every day, Edward would send down delicacies. And he would eat and eat and he grew larger and larger and larger. There were those around him around Edward, who said, this is cruel. He said, oh, it's not cruel. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he decides to leave. Rinald stayed in that room for 10 years, a prisoner of his own appetite, and was freed only when Edward was killed in battle. So James says to us, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves 
in the days of slaughter. That phrase, days of slaughter, is another word. In days of judgment, this is happening to you. Somebody's happy. So please see the picture. I had to wrestle with this this week because I have to look at my own heart. When I look around the people around me that are poor, when I look around and see people who are in famine, the question has to be, am I increasing my own appetite while they have nothing? Because this means a lot to Jesus. He said, you have... You have fattened yourselves in the day of judgment. He said, when you are hoarding and others are in need, you are creating judgment on yourself. You're creating your own prison that you can't get out of. And James says, it's time to trim away the indulgences. It's time to trim the fat. We have this thing within us that the more we have, the more we want. You ever notice that? Somebody once asked Rockefeller, he said, how much more do you need? He said, just one more. Just one more thing. And so we get to the spot where Jesus may say to us, I want you to share what you have, and you'll say, I will as soon as I have enough. But the question is, when is enough? And then we end up doing whatever we need to be able to sustain the lifestyle we have chosen that we need for now and perhaps would gain even better. And so James says this, you do anything that you think is necessary to get more, for you have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. The word condemned means that you have sentenced, you have gone to the courts, and you have used the courts to get more from people who could not even oppose you. They couldn't afford counsel, and you took their stuff. And some of you have even murdered people and taken their things. And no one, no one said a word. You say, but that's not us. We didn't do that. We, we haven't used the courts and we, and we haven't murdered anybody. But the issue is this, that if Jesus said, I'm giving you all this so that you can share it and I have plans for that to be shared, that if Scotty here has need and I have extra, I should be able to come and give that to him. But if I keep it, what I have done at that moment is that I have stolen from him what God had designed for him because it wasn't mine. And in many ways, I have murdered part of the destiny that God had for him. Somebody said once that they'd been praying and they they saw the famine that had taken place in an African country and said, oh God, why aren't you doing something? And he immediately heard God say back, why aren't you doing something? In doing life this way, we have fattened ourselves so there's no escape for slaughter, for judgment. And by the way, Renald III lived only one year later after he got out of prison because he died from his condition, from his uncontrolled appetite. I have a very successful friend, and he's very rich. And I've watched him for years, 20 to 30 years I've watched him. And I've watched him how he has trimmed the fat. And I want to share with you the two things that I've watched him do. The first is this. Throw that picture up on the screen. So he's got money. But what he does, he always takes, out of, out of every $100, he takes 10. Out of every 1,000, he takes 100. And what he does with that is he does this thing called tithe. The tithe is a biblical pattern, a principle, that if you don't do it, it doesn't mean you're not going to heaven, but 
if you do it, it means that you've set yourself up in a place that you have said, if this is what you want, I'll do it joyfully. The tithe is taking 10% of my income and saying, this is yours, God, because God said the tithe is mine. And so I can't take it from him. I must give it. Well, God doesn't need my money, but he wants the tenth because the tenth produces in me a trust. It says, okay, God, here's the tenth for you, and I believe the 90% will, you will use and take care of my needs. And I can tell you I've done this ever since I've been a child, and, you know, I'm now 23 years old, and so I'm 58, and I've done this ever since a child, and God never, ever has forsaken me in the process because what, I, what you do when you tithe is you say, you are Lord of my life. I am submitting everything to you. I see my finances. You do what you need to do. And God said, I will, I will take care of you. In fact, he said, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour out on you a blessing that you that you can't even contain. And he said, if you don't tithe, then you're on your own, which is a curse on you because you don't have the ability to deal with the things you don't see around you. But I see them. So my friend, he, he, would, he would tithe and, and he would say, God, guide me, guide me, show me what to do here, show me what I should do in my business. And, and so he was, he was distributing organic fertilizer and, and he just sensed that God said to him, I want you to buy this place. I want you to buy this company, and he didn't know how he was going to do that, but God guided him somehow. He ended up buying the company when it was just really small. And now it's international. And he said, I have more money than I really need and that I know what to do with. I said, I know what you can do with it. I said, but tell me, did, did you go to college? Nope. You're not a chemist? Nope. Then how do you know how to make these new fertilizers, these new organic fertilizers? He said, I just say to God, God, give me the ideas. And he said, God just shows me what things need to be done, and I mix them together, and I get this fertilizer, and it works. Because it's God's in control. So he tithes, and God owns it all. Here's the other thing he does. Let me, sh let me show you this picture. I love this picture. He shares. He shares what he has so that God supplies more. Jesus said it very clearly when he said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So my friend is a smart negotiator. He never buys anything at listed price. Never. So he will negotiate till he gets the price he wants. And then he lives by another mantra. Another mantra of his is this. If it's, worth, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing to excess. So when he finds a good deal, he buys more than one usually. And so he'll buy a bunch of stuff. I said, well, why do you do that? He says, because I give them away. There's people who need that stuff, so I give it away. I was talking to his wife one day, and she said, yeah, he, he is great in buying, and he's horrible in selling. I said, what do you mean? He says, he won't sell anything. He just gives it to other people. He buys and buys and buys, and he just starts giving it out. I said, really? And I've watched him give away cars. That's what he does. He said, but he can do that because he's wealthy. No, no, listen to me. I knew this guy when one of the ways he existed was that he went to garage sales, bought stuff, went back to his house, had another garage sale, and sold it at a higher amount. 
And how he gave back then is exactly how he gives now. He knows how to trim the fat. He knows the truth of this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. So, how much do you have? What can you share? And immediately my thought is, I can share when I reach this. No, I have more than I need to live. Most of us in this place do. So I have a challenge. I have an assignment. School's only like four weeks away, so I have an assignment. Are you ready? The first assignment is this, and I want you to do this for two weeks. Okay? Do you trust me? Raise your hand if you trust me. Oh, you fools. No. <laughs> Here's the deal. Because I found in following Jesus, you hear a truth. He says, now, now you need to go practice that thing. So we're going to practice. So here's the deal. For the next two weeks, I want you to get up at the beginning of your day. And I want you to declare that mantra. I want you to say, if it's what you want, I will do it joyfully. Every day. Say it out loud. Ready? If it's what you want, I will do it joyfully. Secondly, for the next two weeks, I want you as a family or as friends collected together to say, what do we have? What do we have beyond what we need to live? And I want you to pool your stuff, and I want you to find somebody who's in need of what you have, and I want you to give it to them in the name of Jesus. Just want you to do that for the next two weeks, which means you have to sit down and think about what do I have and who do we know and, and go to them and surprise them and ask Jesus to guide you. Just say, who, who do I do this for? Show me. Or even say, what do I have that's extra? He may say to you, you got two lawnmowers. Get rid of one. You may have two boats. Get past or one of those. <laughs> he may say, you, you've got an extra 10 bucks just sitting there. Go give that to this person. You say, but it may be a small thing. To him who is faithful with little, much more will be given. The kingdom of God is generous when it follows Jesus. And it's time for us. See, you, may, you may say, I've got this, and, and you may say, and there, there's this feeding program and it, over in, in East Africa, and I need to help there, or in Latin America, I, I need to help there. Do something. Take, start sponsoring a kid to go to school. But can we make this generosity part of our lifestyle so that when the day of the Lord comes, he doesn't say, hey, your crops have rotted and your, your clothing has been eaten by moths and your gold is tarnished because you had so much you didn't share any of it. We don't want that judgment. So bottom line is we're either going to be devastated by God because we're not following the way we should be, or we're going to be desperate for him, which gives him great joy. Let me just show you that picture one more time. See, that's what he wants us to do. That gives God joy. It's time for us to trim the fat. Would you stand, please? Let me pray a blessing on you. Now, may you be overcome this week with the fact that Jesus became poor, that we could become rich.
may you see the excess that he's given you. And may you discover the purpose for it. May you find his joy in your generosity. And may you be joyful in his blessing. May his kingdom grow because of your obedience. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.